It's time for the 7th Avenue Project. More information at 7thAvenueProject.com. Yep, it's the 7th Avenue Project. I'm Robert Polly. And on today's show, Pursuing Happiness. The filmmaker Rocco Bellich has been traveling hither and yon in recent years, talking to experts in the booming field of positive psychology. That's the study of happiness. And looking at the state of contentment in different cultures and countries around the world. Along the way, he asked a lot of questions, like, what's the relationship between wealth and happiness? How much control do we have over our own happiness? What are the true sources of psychological well-being? And are there any other benefits aside from feeling good? Rocco attempts to answer those questions in his new documentary. It's entitled Happy, and it's showing next week at the Santa Cruz Film Festival. We will discuss it today, so do stay tuned. All right, now for today's show a conversation with the filmmaker Rocco Bellich. You might remember him from his 1999 documentary, Genghis Blues. It was nominated for an Academy Award, and it told the story of the blind blues musician Paul Pena making his way from San Francisco to the country of Tuva to compete in a throat singing contest. Rocco's done a lot of traveling to remote locations like Tuva over the years, and one of the things he's noticed is that people's happiness doesn't always match their circumstances. That's exactly what he saw the first time he visited East Africa. And uh, I was there with a group of students who had raised money for refugees of a civil war. And I was very prepared going on this trip when I was 18 years old to see a lot of suffering and pain and hardship and misery. And what I saw instead uh, is people who were lively and uh, curious and excited and dancing and happy. And they, were, uh, they just had this zest for life. Uh, despite their hardship that I didn't see in some of my friends back in America. That experience stuck with him, and he thought of it again years later when he was talking to his friend Tom Shadiak. Shadiak's a well-known Hollywood director. He's responsible for blockbuster comedies like The Nutty Professor, Bruce Almighty, and Liar Liar. And he was telling Rocco about an article he'd read in the New York Times. And it said that though America's one of the richest countries, it's nowhere near the happiest, and it's way down at number 23 or 25 or something. And he said, you know, I've suspected this for a long time because uh, the first time I bought a big house in Beverly Hills, I thought it was going to bring me happiness. And, uh, in fact, the one overwhelming feeling I had is that I was no happier uh, after buying this mansion than I was before I had it. And he said that, you know, he's surrounded by people who've achieved the exaggerated version of the American dream, you know, people who are extremely rich, uh, extremely famous, extremely powerful, even good-looking and talented. They sort of have everything going for them. Uh, many of them are not happy. So Tom said, look, I think we should explore this subject in a documentary, and uh, I don't know how to make documentaries. You do, so uh, maybe if you, if you are willing to make it, I'll uh, help you pay for it, and let's see what we find out. And I just thought it sounded like an amazing project that uh, I immediately said yes to. Yeah, who could turn down an offer like that? I'll, I'll, I'll help pay for you to travel the world looking for happiness. Exactly. Uh, not, not a bad gig, really, huh? You know, for me, uh, it, it's perfect. I thought 
I kind of knew what it takes to be happy because I was pretty happy despite the fact that I didn't grow up very rich or I didn't, you know, I wasn't uh, super powerful. I didn't have a good job. I, none of that stuff that we're sort of trained to think will lead to happiness. I didn't have uh, most of it, yet I felt pretty fortunate and uh, like I was enjoying my life. So I thought that this movie was going to give me an opportunity to share some ideas that I had had and to explore some of these ideas like how could people be happy in a place where they should be suffering. Um, I didn't realize that I had a lot more to learn. And in fact, looking back on this whole experience, um, it literally changed my life. Uh, I moved to a different city so that I could be closer to friends. Uh, I started surfing again after 12 years of not surfing. Uh, you know, when I talked to a scientist who told me about the positive impact of physical aerobic exercise and what it does to your brain and to your happiness level. Um, so this whole journey has really been something that it, it felt right at the beginning, and I didn't know how right that was until uh, until this stage where I'm almost near the end of the project. And I look back and see how much it's had an impact on me. Were, were you at all worried, though? There is the dismissive term, feel-good movie, and uh, there has never been a movie more deserving of that term in a non-ironic way than this one. <laughs> well, I'm not worried about that at all. I think it's something that I aspire to creating. Uh, you know, There's enough feel-bad stuff out there, and, and I figure if I'm going to contribute positively to the world, it should be in the other direction. It is interesting that... The idea of happiness uh, as a, um, say, a subject for a film or for uh, for scientists had, until recently, this sort of mushy sound to it. And, and uh, one of the people you interview, you interview a lot of experts, a psychologist, Ed Diener from the University of Illinois, who now studies happiness, talked about uh, when he first started in the uh, early 80s, people thought it was kind of a flaky thing to do. They thought... Well, you can measure depression, and depression and unhappiness are valid areas for study, but happiness, that's kind of, you know, that's kind of fluffy. It didn't make sense to scientists, you yeah. know, and, and, I, and I understand that. You know, you see a kid, a three-year-old kid uh, smiling at a puppy, and how the hell are you going to measure that? I, I get it. It's, it was something that was considered to be very unscientific. But uh, thanks to the work of people like Ed Diener and Martin Seligman, and Richard Davidson and others, uh, happiness has become a viable scientific subject. And in fact, uh, Ed Diener actually had to refer to his happiness research as um, studies on subjective well-being. He made up the term <laughs> subjective well-being to, to sound more scientific, so that when he was writing papers, people didn't think that it was some flaky, uh, you know, new agey uh, type uh, subject. And uh, amazingly, once scientists started looking at it with a serious eye, they started to discover all kinds of things that we didn't know before. Um, and so we're really at the beginnings, I would say, of that body of research. Uh, it's really only been between 10 and 15 years that uh, any significant study has been done. Uh, Ed Diener, of course, has been doing it for about 35 years, but he was really uh, almost alone in, this, um, in his efforts. And uh, since that time, they've used the uh, technology like functional MRI scanners to look into people's brains. Um, they've done all, all kinds of analyses that they had never done, and uh, and that, that's leading to some very exciting discoveries that we can all benefit from. Isn't it strange, though, that studying uh, the opposite of happiness, depression, uh, melancholy, and all of that, was totally legitimate, but something about studying happiness seemed just a little bit insubstantial? Isn't that doesn't that reflect an interesting prejudice? 
It's absolutely, and it's funny, and I, of course I never thought of that before, um, but doctors, my dad was a cardiologist, so I say this with some sort of uh, insight. Um, doctors in general, I think, approach their work uh, as being tasked with the challenge of making somebody better, somebody who is sick and making them better. In other words, bringing somebody from a negative state into a normal state, whatever normal is, or average state. And studying happiness is studying the other end of the spectrum, which is um, somebody who's normal. What does it take to make that person optimized, to make them feel like they're flourishing, uh, you know, for that person to be um, really using their potential to their greatest? Uh, and that's something that I think fundamentally uh, wasn't natural to a lot of doctors and the scientific mind because um, because their efforts had been so focused on healing pathological problems or diseases, um, and this is really a new take on on what their abilities could do. If it ain't broke, don't study it. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Basically, that was it until Ed said, "You know what? There is something to study there," and people thankfully followed suit. And and now it's big. It's huge. Now it is humongous. Uh, the when we first started this project. About uh, five, even almost six years ago, uh, there was a small handful, it was like four books that had been written in the last 10 years or so on happiness. And since that time, I think just in the next couple of years, there was about 20 books that had been written. And uh, you know, now we've seen happiness being talked about on CNN a number of times, in Time Magazine, Scientific American, Oprah. You know, now it's kind of a much more mainstream subject. And, and, you know, and referring to something that you said before, it may seem like a superficial thing to study, but in fact, happiness is much deeper than that. Um, the happiness that scientists, scientists are studying and the happiness that we explore in our film is not that fleeting sense of pleasure that you might get from eating an ice cream cone or, um, you know, smiling at somebody. Uh, but it's the deeper sense of contentment that really uh, imbues a person's perspective on life uh, that can be there with them whether times are tough or easy. Uh, that's really the that kind of happiness that we're talking about, the kind that affects everything you do. You traveled the world uh, looking for happy people. <laughs> you start off with one uh, in Calcutta, uh, a guy who's actually a rickshaw driver, a barefoot rickshaw driver, about as poor as you can get, I would say. I mean, he lives in a kind of a shanty with his family. Uh, it describes how, you know, his feet are burning in the summer when he's pulling this rickshaw. To describe him on paper would be uh, to probably make most people think poor, miserable wretch. But uh, this guy, whose name is Manoj Singh, Turns out to be about the happiest guy you could ever ever meet. Oh, that was stunning to me. Um, when we met Manoj Singh, I met him in the context of a research uh, study that was being done in the uh, slum where he lived. And this, the scientist that I was with, a guy named Robert Diener, who's known as the uh, Indiana Jones of happiness research because <laughs> he goes to these far-flung places to collect data. Uh, Robert Diener, uh, with his series of tests and uh, questionnaires and his process, that includes um, talking to people's families and their friends and their children to corroborate the evidence of how happy a person is. He determined that Manoj Singh, uh, despite the fact that he lives in a bamboo hut made of, uh, you know, covered in plastic bags, uh, Manoj Singh is exactly as happy as the average American. 
Uh, and that was shocking because Manoj Singh does not even own a pair of shoes. Well, wait a minute. I, I've seen Manoj Singh in your movie. He seemed a lot happier than the average American. That's, that's, it's, a, it's a good point you make because he does. He beams with a sense of contentment uh, and an appreciation for what he has that we often see missing in our fellow uh, you know, citizens in America or in other developed countries. I think uh, if somebody is in a position where their life is insecure because they're so poor, they may be at the mercy of uh, criminals or a corrupt police or, uh, or a- any of those uh, unpredictable elements that could, um, that could destabilize a person's life, there's inherently going to be uh, a negative impact on somebody's happiness level. And it's true that Manoj lives on the outskirts of Calcutta in a slum that only a few months before we got there had actually been evicted from underneath a train, uh, train station platform. Uh, there was a group of a few hundred families living under a railroad track, and um, at some point, the powers that be decided they needed to move. And, uh, you know, that kind of destabilization does not do uh, a person's happiness good. But despite that fact, Manoj was able to maintain a very high level of happiness and appreciate what he did have in his life, and that's a lesson for all of us. By the way, uh, you, you called that uh, researcher the uh, Indiana Jones of happiness research? Yeah. So, yes. so what, uh, what sort of perils does he face? Laughing too hard? Um. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Well, you know what he did? What he faces is um, the challenge of uh, ingratiating himself with certain groups of people who see him as an outsider ah. in order that he can collect data that is honest and accurate. And uh, the data collection for happiness researchers today, the bulk of it has to do with questionnaires, usually written questionnaires that are specifically designed to um, accommodate for biases in culture and things like that. They've been proven to be very accurate when corroborated with other types of evidence for example, sticking somebody in a functional MRI machine and looking at their brain and seeing how their brain is, uh, what parts of their brain are being active, those are very uh, close to what they call self-reports, which is when somebody, however, somebody describes himself on a scale of 1 to 10 or 1 to 7. That's exactly a question I wanted to ask you. I mean, can we trust self-reporting? Is it possible that in one culture or, or, or for one person saying I'm happy might match up with what another person would say? use a word like okay or not bad or I'm not so good. I mean, yes. are we consistent in the way we talk about ourselves? Well, that's, uh, no, A, we're not. We're not consistent. And B, yes, that is one of the challenges that scientists have faced, and they've been very aware of that, uh, I think, from the beginning. Um, cultures like uh, in Japan and in Russia, to say that you're happy can mean, uh, in Japan, it can mean that you're selfish because you're not focusing on the happiness of your family or your community. Oh, so you don't uh, show it. You don't brag yeah, about it. Exactly. Yeah. And in Russia, to say that you're happy um, can be a sign of uh, what they call idiocy, to, of being stupid, because uh, to say you're happy is to invite bad luck, according to their culture. So, uh, you know, there are very strong cultural biases uh, you know, being in California, I think the bias is kind of at the other end of the spectrum. Exactly. You're supposed to say you're happy, yeah. Yeah, you say, I'm doing great. How yeah. are you? Even you know, even if uh, life is miserable. Right. And, yes, yeah, scientists have um, addressed those issues. One of the ways they do it is by, uh, as I mentioned, 
getting corroborative evidence from friends, neighbors, uh, family members to uh, determine how happy a person is and to see if that matches up with what they say. So uh, in a culture where uh, you may be uncomfortable saying that you yourself are happy, there may not be the same bias to say that your neighbor or your husband or your wife is happy. That uh-huh. may be able to answer more honestly. Clever. And so they, they do, yeah, exactly. They are clever and they do figure out how to um, compensate for these biases. And one of the challenges that Robert Diener, you know, the Indiana Jones uh, of research faced is that uh, he was with the Maasai tribe in East Africa. And they looked at him as an outsider for the first few days, and finally they were having a ceremony, uh, of coming-of-age ceremony for the young boys who were teenagers to become men, to become warriors. And part of this process was to be branded by hot coals. You know, they would pull a flaming stick out of the fire and push it into your chest uh, and make a welt, a huge uh, scar. And Robert ripped his shirt open, and he said he was ready. And uh, he said the pain was extreme, and he couldn't bear it, but he didn't scream because he knew that would be a sign of weakness. And uh, he was very happy that they seemed pleased, and everybody <laughs> said, okay, well, you're, you know, you, this is good. You, well, we're going to talk to you. And then they said, uh, now we have to do it six more times, uh, <laughs> at which I think he maybe realized he was in deeper than he wanted to be. But, uh, but he's very dedicated to collecting data, and there are a number of people um, who are doing that around the world, and they're they're creating a database that just literally didn't exist a few years ago. Wow. When you said uh, Indiana Jones of Happiness Research, I thought you were stretching uh, the notion of adventurer, but that sounds like the, he's the real deal. Um, oh. and, you, and you say his name is Robert Diener? Yes. Robert, actually, Robert Biswas Diener. He took on the last name of his wife and added it to his name. So he hyphenated his last name. Biswas Diener is now his his last name. But he's no relation to Ed Diener, the guy we mentioned he earlier? He is actually Ed's son, exactly. Oh, he is. <laughs> which is how he got wrangled into the whole thing. Ed, oh. said, look, Ed said, look, we need to collect data from some farther out places uh, than, you know, just the st- college students in America. We need somebody to go out there, and none of my grad students are willing to do it because they think it's too dangerous. And Robert said, I'll do it, I'll go. And, uh, and the rest is history. Well, you uh, did some adventuring of your own. You went to... Um We've already mentioned India. You went to Bhutan, famous for having made happiness kind of a, a national priority. You went to the Kalahari Desert in southern Africa. You went to Japan and Okinawa, Denmark, uh, Louisiana Bayou. Um, I'm probably missing some other great locations, but you really got around. How'd you select these places? We just followed our gut, and we spoke to friends and family and people we met along the way, and we read books, and we looked online, and we just uh, we kind of collected information from whoever we could and wherever we could find it, and we made decisions on where to go and who to interview uh, based on the, that uh, effort. So, for example, the reason why I ended up in the Louisiana Bayou is that a woman uh, named Lisa Millimet, who I still have not met in person, uh, emailed me online, uh, you know, emailed me about my first film, and she said, it was great, what are you working on now? And I said, well, I'm making a film on happiness. And she wrote back and said, oh, that's interesting, because I won a competition to photograph happiness in America. And I said, oh, great, who'd you take a picture of? Maybe we should put them in our movie. And, uh, you know, a couple months later, I was in Louisiana meeting a person that she had told me about named uh, Roy Blanchard and his family, and they're in the film. So, uh we found out, we, we decided where to go and who to talk to based on random events like that. 
um, from that to reading a book, uh, you know, by um, Ed Diener and going to see him in uh, Illinois or finding out certain statistics uh, and deciding to go uh, to Okinawa. We went to Okinawa because we had heard that uh, happy people tend to be healthier and more successful at work and more creative and have more friends, and they tend to live longer than unhappy people. And uh, I remembered from being a kid that in the Guinness Book of World Records, often the oldest people in the world came from Japan, in particular Okinawa. So we thought, well, if happy people live longer, and there are a lot of old people in Okinawa, maybe they're happy. And there was no research at the time uh, done about that, but we went there, and sure enough, it was uh, extremely true. I was shocked at uh, how amazing Okinawa is in providing happiness for the citizens there. Now, now to, to make a, a broad generalization, I would say that all the happy people you depict in your movie, uh, again, from Denmark to Okinawa to Louisiana Bayou uh, to the desert of southern Africa, are not materially very well off. Even the Danes that you talked to were living in community housing, didn't have a lot of uh, material possessions. So you really don't depict any happy, wealthy people in your movie. Did you find any? Okay, so that that's um I th- that's true. First of all, I I, I think that's accurate. Um, but the decision wasn't made uh, based on the fact that we couldn't find any happy rich people. Uh, of course, there are plenty. Um, the decision was really made to uh, explore what does make people happy. And over and over, there's research shows that uh, beyond a very low level, a very basic level of material income, which provides for basic needs like shelter and food and a certain amount of safety, uh, increased income does not significantly add to a person's happiness. In fact, and if I could jump in, Daniel Gilbert, very well-known happiness expert from Harvard, says that at least in America, you do get happier as your income rises uh, from, say, zero up to about 50000 a year. In other words, at a level when you, when you can take care of basic necessities. And then it seems to level off. So the, the billionaire isn't any happier than the guy who makes you know 50000 a year. Yeah, uh, exactly. Now, I think, um, although the data is conclusive in some ways, I think there are also some uh, holes that haven't been filled yet. Uh, and the most interesting question relating to income and happiness that I have come across is that when a person is happy, they tend to be more successful. In other words, the byproduct of happiness is success, and that success can also mean financial success. Mm. So the chicken or the egg question arises. Is somebody happy because they're successful, or are they successful because they're happy? And there's a lot of evidence that shows that people are successful because they're happy, which sort of makes intuitive sense. You know, if your friend is happy, you're more likely to want to be with them, which means you're more likely to want to help them out when they need it, which means you're more likely to trust them or work with them, give them opportunities. So um, I feel that the correlation is in that direction, that uh, happiness leads to material success sometimes. So, for Uh, instance, uh, if they studied someone who was unhappy uh, and therefore worked harder and got more money, that person wouldn't necessarily be made happier. My suspicion is no, or, or if, if they are made happier, it would be very nominal amount. Uh, whereas doing things like, uh, like following uh, a hobby of yours, pursuing a hobby, or um, deciding to incorporate something that gives your life meaning, which could be anything from picking up garbage at the park 
to uh, taking up surfing again, to uh, helping out at the um, at the retirement home once a week. If you do something like that, your happiness boost can be very significant. Whereas uh, there's more and more evidence that shows, you know, making an extra million dollars, if it makes you happier at all, it'll be a fraction. And uh, and again, I suspect that um, the people who are able to make millions of dollars often are doing something that they love, which is why they're good at it, and being good at it then translates into a higher income. So the decision to not have uh, happy, rich people in the movie uh, was really not a conscious decision. It was simply that uh, we were focusing on the things that really do impact a person's happiness uh, in the most dramatic ways. Uh, you know, uh, one of the happiness researchers that you uh, show in your film is named Tim Kasser. Yes. Uh, is he a psychologist also? Yes. Uh, from? Yes. At Knox College in Knox uh, College. Illinois. And he made a distinction between extrinsic goals uh, like money status and image versus intrinsic goals like personal growth, close relationships, community feeling. And he said in general, people who are oriented toward those intrinsic goals and achieve those are happier uh, yes. Than the people who go for these, you know, these more material or outward uh, sorts of um, achievements. Exactly. That that to me was one of my uh, one of the greatest experiences I had making the film was discovering just how in control of our happiness we are. And I don't want to overstate this. There are people who are clinically depressed who cannot just decide to be happy or who cannot just change a few habits and become happier. But for the majority of us, most of the time. Uh, something so fundamental as our value system, you know, what we decide to pursue and, uh, and appreciate and uh, give value to, uh, has a huge impact on our happiness. And so exactly, if, you, if you're interested foremost in money, power, and fame, you're less likely to be happy than if you're interested in cooperation, uh, community, uh, wanting to help make the world a better place. Uh, despite, you know, regardless of how successful you are at either of those goals, uh, simply having those goals, having the intrinsic goals, uh, you're more likely to be happy. And mm. that's, that's just awesome, because we can all do that. And in fact, I think that's what's in us inherently. Mm. I think we're born with those intrinsic goals, and we're, off, we're inundated with uh, pressure uh, from the media and from, uh, you know, movies and, and from all directions, we're often uh, pressured to feel that we should prioritize things like our looks and our uh, social status and our wealth more than is natural to us. When you say we, you mean Americans? I mean Americans, I mean Westerners, and more and more increasingly, I mean everyone in the world. Mm. Um, I, I would say, this is going to sound harsh, but um, there's a disease in our country that... Uh, all of us have, or I should say most of us have to some extent, including me, um, and that disease, uh, the symptoms are the desire for wealth and comfort and uh, social status and power at the expense of things that really will bring us happiness, like community and compassion and uh, helping each other. Um, as beautiful a medium as the one you work in, movies, is, it's also spread a very, very um, oppressive image, uh, you know, I'm going I'm to get opinionated here, of what you should look like and what you should act like that I think has had a growing influence on how people feel about themselves. Mm. Back in the day when there were no global media, there were no mass media whatsoever, 
the idea of beauty. I don't think people were as, you know, sort of obsessed with it. And a particular look that you see right. in movies and TV that now everybody around the world uh, increasingly, especially women, but men also, feel uh, almost driven to try to achieve for themselves. So there's there's a way I in which... You're right. Yeah. You're, you're right. And there's uh, there have been studies that are fascinating to me, and I don't remember the researcher's name who did the pioneering study in this, but the, the experiment basically was this. They showed magazines, uh, fashion magazines, with women, pictures of women, to groups of men and women separately. So they would show, let's say, to a husband and then the same magazines to his wife. Uh, do some uh, data collection before and after that experience. And what they discovered is that in both cases, both men and women, after looking at pictures of beautiful women in a magazine, tend to feel uh, less happy. In particular, women feel less good about their own body image, and men feel less good about their wife's or girlfriend's body image. Oh, in other man. words, they feel less satisfied with their wife, and the wife or girlfriend feels less satisfied with herself. Um, so what you're implying has been uh, shown through scientific study to be true. Um, you know, on the other hand, it's not the fault of the medium, but of the speaker. And uh, we all can use these mediums to empower ourselves in ways that we want to be empowered and, we, and to affect us in the ways we want. And so I see great hope in that. Uh, it, it's going to sound maybe absurd, but I do feel that uh, making a film like this is, in a way, an offering um, to people. It's uh, my way of giving back. Uh, I've met many, many, many people around the world in many countries, uh, many countries where people are much worse off than in America, and uh, and I've recognized how much I have to be grateful for. And uh, with all of that, those advantages, I feel it's an obligation to do something in return and to um, to sort of pay it forward or however you want to describe it. And uh, making a film on happiness is one of the most fun and rewarding things that I could figure out to do. <laughs> um, now, are you concerned at all, though, by putting out the message that's backed up by research that money doesn't really matter all that much beyond a certain point, that some of these very poor people that you interviewed, like Manoj Singh in Calcutta, uh, like some of the Bushmen in the Kalahari, uh, who have, you know, they have zero money, <laughs> um, are just as happy or happier than, than say, wealthy Western industrialized folks. Um, are you worried at all that that might send a message, well, good, now we've got permission not to care at all about income equality, about uh, economic fairness, and any of that? You're, you're bringing up a very good point. In general, around the world, Increased income also uh, relates to better human rights, better educational systems, uh, better health care, uh, more equality in the justice system, uh, equal rights for different races and genders. So increasing happiness in a country or in a community has all kinds of positive effects that do genuinely affect happiness productivity, you know, sense of well-being, health, longevity, all of those things. So um, just because somebody is able to be happy and poor does not mean that money or, uh, you know, financial stimulation would not affect them in a positive way or would not affect their community in a positive way. Uh, I think the more important takeaway message is that 
when we prioritize the economy above all else, uh, at the expense of communities, at the expense of equality and the environment, um, when we do something like that, we are heading in a, we're heading down a dead end street. And we should be empowered by the fact that we don't need the exaggerated abundance that we're pursuing. We don't need that to be happy. So, so let's be clear. Your film isn't saying uh, poor people the world over are, are plenty happy enough and uh, who cares whether they have high infant mortality, scarce nutrition, uh, wars, and other, Not at all. And other it, hardships. It, no, exactly. Uh, it, it, what we're really saying is that despite hardships, the human person is resilient and, and the human body can uh, overcome and the human spirit can overcome hardship. It doesn't mean that hardship is something we should ignore or not try and alleviate. Um, but what it does mean is that if we're devising a, a system of uh, government or politics or economics that, um, that brings resources in an extreme, exaggerated amount to a few people uh, and not to people who, let's say, who, whose lives it would really benefit, uh, we may want to readjust. And, and I'm not calling for, you know, some kind of socialism or anything like that, but what I mean is if a person has a lot of resources at their disposal, um, they should be aware of the truth, which is that it's extremely unlikely more resources, more money will make them happier. And, in fact, the, the money that they do have can make a lot of people happier because it can bring them from these basic, basic levels of uh need into into a, a place where there is, as you're implying, uh, health care and lower mortality rates and safety and security and, and uh, human rights. In the course of your film, in talking to these experts, um, you sort of compile a list of yeah. some of the main things that are essential to or contribute to happiness. Want to just you know, name some of them for us right now? Sure, sure. And uh, you should know that this list is different for different people, or I should say the priority of this list is different for okay. different people. Okay. So um, uh, having a sense of community, living in a place where you feel like you're part of something bigger, and whether that's through your neighbors or your church or your soccer team or your baseball team, whatever it is, being part of something bigger has a huge uh, impact on our happiness in a positive way. Um, doing, uh, having novelty in your life, so trying new things. Um, many people uh, do that by buying uh, new clothes all the time, uh, and that's sort of the way we've been trained to use that common desire. But uh, a healthier way might be just to try new things. So, you know, if you, if you like clothes, shopping at a thrift store is uh, theoretically equally rewarding as going to a department store because uh, as long as it's something new and you haven't had it, that's what gives you the boost. It's not that it's, um, that it's brand new or that it's a name brand. Um, so it's trying, uh, trying out new things, you know, going surfing for the first time or, trying to, or going bicycle riding, all, all of those things where you're, uh, where you're experimenting with your daily routine and you're exploring and trying new things. Those, that helps. Which is why people love travel so much. Exactly. Constant exactly. novelty, yeah. Exactly. Uh, you know, when you travel, uh, whether you like it or not, you shift your paradigm to where you're open to things and you notice things. You know, if you've ever been to another country, you notice street signs in a way that you never would notice them in America because you're so used to them here. Uh, you know, these really basic things, just the fact that you're, um, 
your perception changes, there's some something about that that gives a boost to our happiness. Uh, physical aerobic exercise uh, is something that we know gives uh, a boost to your dopamine system. And dopamine is a chemical in your brain that's required for feelings of pleasure and happiness. And uh, that system deteriorates over time, but the best way that scientists have found to maintain the health of that system is through physical aerobic exercise. Uh, there's something related called flow. And flow is uh, the idea of being totally engrossed in an activity. And it can be physical, uh, but it doesn't have to be. So, uh, you know, it could be playing basketball or, uh, or surfing, but it could also be knitting or gardening or even fixing your car or even doing the dishes. Uh, many people I know say that they get into flow when they're cleaning their house. And if you allow yourself to do that activity that enables you to sort of forget, forget about time, you're totally in the zone where you're concentrating on the physical thing that you're doing, um, people who do that tend to be happier than people who don't. Um, and I'd say most importantly, uh, what science has found is that our relationships are the most important, that they're the strongest indicator of a person's happiness. So uh, it doesn't mean you have to have a lot of friends, but the strength of at least a few good relationships in your life uh, have a bigger positive impact on your happiness than just about anything else. You know, the one thing um, I don't think uh, was named in your in your documentary, Happy, that's the title of the documentary that we're talking about today, um, that I was a little surprised by was laughter and humor and humor. They didn't come yeah. up. Yes. Um, absolutely. And there, there's a number of things. I mean, there's sex, there's uh, dancing. Oh, that's true. Sex wasn't uh, there. <laughs> there's, there's also, you know, eating chocolate. Uh, there, there's a lot of things that do give, our, give us a, a genuine boost in our happiness that we did not cover in the film. Um, it's partly related to a study that I uh, read that I thought was fascinating where they showed uh, five or ten minute clips of very funny movies to people uh, in this experiment. And then they showed about five or ten minutes of very inspiring stories to people. And, uh, you know, stories of, uh, that weren't necessarily full of laughter at all and sometimes people cried when they saw them. But they were stories of people doing things for other people, you know, going out on a limb, taking a risk to help somebody else. Uh, and what they found is that in both cases, people's happiness level got a boost uh, right after they were finished watching the videos. But the people who watched the inspiring videos, uh, that boost lasted a much longer period of time, uh, up to a few weeks after the uh, experience of watching the inspiring videos. And whereas the people who watched something that made them laugh but was relatively superficial in content, um, that boost kind of trailed off after, I think, a few hours or maybe a couple of days. Uh, yeah, in fact, you can laugh at, at dark humor, and I mean, at least I can, and both, you know, experience like the momentary pleasure of a laugh, but it's kind of leaves a bad taste in your mouth, you know? Exactly, exactly. You can feel pretty and, bad after laughing at something. Yeah, and I don't say that to uh, to diminish the importance or power of laughter at all. Uh, you know, many of us have heard about um, circumstances where people have healed themselves of very critical illnesses, and they give credit to uh, laughing. Uh, and there are laughter yoga groups around the world. Um, we did shoot with a laughter yoga group, and ultimately it just didn't end up in the film. Um, but you're bringing up a good point, which is there are many aspects of uh, happiness and many causes of happiness 
uh, many more than we could fit into one film. Yeah. Um, and that's sort of the beauty of it, you know, that, that uh, happiness is different for all of us. The, the causes are different for all of us. And, uh, and our film hopefully uh, allows people uh, insight into a starting point, at least, um, into how they can explore and develop their own happiness. You, you know, back to the uh, subject of comparing different cultures, different countries, and the, the general level of happiness, you go to some of the uh, highest-rated countries, which um, is an interesting list. It turns out that Denmark is at the very, very top. Uh, I th- I knew about Bhutan in the Himalayas, uh, a country that's identified, you know, gross national happiness as uh, one of their uh, major um, goals, uh, you know, for the government, uh, and that sure is a, a gorgeous and, and sort of contented-looking place from the films I've seen. Um, and then uh, unhappy countries, um, you didn't have very many, but you, you did have one, which was Japan. Uh, and this was before the tsunami, before the earthquake. Of course, Japan has been in a 20-year a uh, economic uh, slump, but you focused on something other than economics, though. Well, yeah, Japan is an interesting case because, uh, as I mentioned, uh, economic prosperity of a country does tend to lead the citizens towards uh, happiness because of, I believe it's because of these side effects like higher standard of living, uh, or I should say uh, uh, health care and human rights, education. Um, but Japan is an anomaly. Uh, it is one of the richer countries per capita in the world, and yet their happiness level is way down, much more comparable to a country that has a lot more uh, explicit problems um, that they face. And that's why we went to study Japan. And it seems to be that the work ethic that uh, enabled Japan to recover from the devastation of World War II, of two atomic bombs, and of the disgrace of losing a war uh, and the, the just the, the economic and uh, human destruction, the toll that they took, um, that power that they uh, mustered together as a country to unify and rebuild, um, they've used uh, that same intensity uh, almost ever since then, at least that's the way it's been described to me, where society in Japan is so driven towards work and uh, saving face and achievement and uh, all of these pressures that are coming from the outside. You know, a person faces so much external pressure uh, as as a person grows up in Japan and then enters the workforce that um, it's leading people to literally working themselves to death. And uh, it does not take a scientific analysis to understand that if you're working so hard that you're dying at you know in your mid twenties from um, you know hemorrhaging in the brain and heart attacks and things that uh, are unnatural for somebody of that age, uh, it, it doesn't take a scientist to understand that that would have a negative impact on your happiness. So, so you and, would say it's not the two-decade economic stagnation. But it's... No, no, it's a cultural, I, I believe strongly that it's a cultural um, byproduct. The unhappiness in Japan is a cultural byproduct of, uh, of a very intense society that has their values placed uh, in possibly in an imbalanced way where uh, the priority for work and social status and uh, material possessions is so high that the basic needs of a human being for love and connectedness and friendship 
and uh, and exploration and novelty um, by ignore by just about ignoring those things, uh, it's leading Japan to a very unhealthy and unhappy state. Hmm. Now, as you mentioned at the beginning of our interview, uh, America it doesn't rank very high on the list. We're not down at the bottom, but we're not as happy as as one would imagine from our prosperity relative to other countries. We are the ones, though, I think, who were the very first to write happiness into our founding documents, you know, in the Declaration of Independence, life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Um, That's still pretty rare, isn't it? I mean, has anybody else done that? It's very rare. As far as I know, nobody has. Um, The idea that that our country was founded on the idea, the principle that um, every citizen should be entitled to the right to pursue happiness is is so unique and uh, inspiring around the world that I have seen and heard of people referring to it as uh, maybe the most important contribution that uh, the founding fathers of America made. Because what it does is it really empowers the individual and uh, gives weight to the idea that an individual's experience of life on earth is something to be valued. And in general, uh, people have divided uh, societies as being either collectivist or individualistic. And uh, countries, particularly in Asia, are often considered to be collectivist in the sense that the collective nature of a person's experience, their relationship to their community and their family, takes precedence over their personal experience of their lives. So people are willing to sacrifice their own happiness and sometimes even their own health and safety uh, for the good of the community, of the collective group. Whereas individualistic countries, uh, America being at the top of that uh, definition, are countries where individual freedom and uh, individual pursuits uh, take precedence over the group and uh, laws protect our rights to do things that we want to do um, you know, as long as we're not hurting other people. So those are two general categories of societies. And uh, America and the Declaration of Independence uh, with the pursuit of happiness uh, concept is really the first time that I know that it was uh, codified um, as something that is an inalienable right, uh, you know, ostensibly handed down by God. And that's something that has inspired people all over the world and uh, still Despite the fact that it was written, you know, over a couple hundred years ago, it's still uh, one of the, the prominent pieces of uh, of political work and literature that uh, that uh, talks about the subject, um, which is really a statement, a testament to the fact that uh, that the people who wrote it were so uh, forward thinking, and uh, and really came up with something that that ignited the spirit, the human spirit, um, and continues to today. And yet. Um... It also occurred to me, watching your film uh, and seeing how different cultures manifest happiness and achieve happiness, that perhaps one problem in America, these days at least, is this idea of pursuing, uh, that that mm. the pursuit became everything, that the competition, the rat race, became the important thing, and that, in fact, um, and I, I say this from my own personal experience, sometimes when sizing up our own happiness, it's a comparative process. Well, how am I doing relative to someone Mm. else? And if I'm not happy enough, based on some, again, comparison to someone else, then I'm not happy. We make ourselves unhappy by comparing our happiness to other people's happiness. There's been some fascinating studies on uh, comparison, uh, on on how we compare ourselves. And uh, as you're uh, indicating, 
the general tendency for people is to compare with people who are better off than them. Uh, or, or actually, let me say this more accurately. People who are not very happy tend to compare themselves with people who are better off than them. And people who are happy tend to compare themselves with people who they're better off than. So, for example, I often think uh, if something happens, like I pop a tire on the freeway, I often think, well, it could always be worse. I could not have a car in the first place, or I could have gotten into an accident. You know, I can always be worse than whatever situation I'm in. Uh-huh. Whereas unhappy people might say, oh, my goodness, if only I had a better car, if only I was able to afford a new car, or um, be in a, a situation where I could fly, or you know, they'll compare themselves to people in a better situation than them. And so sure enough, uh, comparison in general, uh, especially if you're comparing uh, upwards, does not lead you to be a happier person. You clearly come off as an advocate for happiness. Absolutely. Very, very controversial position to take, I might add. Oh, for it to be controversial is absurd. (laughs) I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. (laughs) No, no, but but you know what? You're right. You're right. Really? um, Well, absolutely. There are people who just are resistant to the fact that happiness can be a worthy goal. They feel that um, in order to achieve something important, in order to have an impact on the world or to make a name for yourself, you have to be serious and you have to do work that uh, that that you have to suffer through. Right, right. And you know, and you know what I'm thinking? Uh, in fact, I was thinking of it just as I was asking the question. Was Orson Welles' speech in The Third Man in the uh, Ferris Wheel where he talks about the necessity of, I guess, war and violence, uh, you know, because look at the Swiss who who have avoided war. All they've been able to produce is the cuckoo clock. <laughs> Very famous monologue, uh, you know, in that movie. So, so you don't buy that. Well, I don't at all. I don't <laughs> at all. And 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 you know, uh, but you know, it's it, it's a fun discussion. But uh, thankfully, there's more and more scientific uh, data uh, stacking up on the side that shows that. Um, cooperation is better for uh, productivity and for health and longevity than competition is. And it doesn't mean competition is bad, right? We, it, it's natural, especially for you know young boys who want to see if they can run faster than their brother or sister or friend. Uh, competition is natural, and there's a place for it. But to found our society and our educational system and our economic system on competition is really missing... Uh, our potential, I feel. And, uh, you know, Charles Darwin, apparently, in The Descent of Man, referred to survival of the fittest. He said that phrase twice. Whereas he used the word love uh, and cooperation, he used those words 99 times to describe the way that the nature works. Uh, the, the fact that we've twisted that message uh, on its head apparently is the result of uh, of a guy named Aldous Huxley who really made Darwin's findings famous. You mean Thomas a, Huxley, Thomas Huxley. Thomas Huxley, yes, yes, yeah. yes of course, sorry. And Thomas uh, Huxley had, uh, uh, you know, a darker view of humanity and uh, of the world, and he focused on the things that we have come to, to know as uh, the natural environment, which uh, seems to be an aberration of the truth. You know, it, it's, it's, it's quite interesting. Your film seems to make the point subtly, uh, and it's really the experts who are making this point, that... Um, Whereas some people might think happiness is value neutral, that uh, you may be happy, but it might be at the expense of others, or it might even be by doing harm to others, that, you know, a sadist is happy, 
uh, inflicting pain on people, that a psychopath is happy murdering people. But in fact, the experts seem to say that doing good stuff, helping other people, bonding with other people, being virtuous in many ways, is the surest route to happiness. Exactly. Exactly. And what's really amazing about that is you realize we're all capable of that. There's nobody, no matter what situation you're in, that you, that cannot be compassionate, loving, helpful, grateful. Those are things that we can all do. So be nice to other people because it will make you happy. How selfish. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's, it's really good that you bring that up because I remember when I started the project, um, one thing I was really happy to discover is uh, is that simple fact that helping others makes you happy. And and it reminded me of how many times I've heard friends of mine or people I know being criticized where the criticism went something like this. Uh, so-and-so is only going to uh, to the soup kitchen to help for Thanksgiving because it makes them feel better. Right. Or so-and-so is only donating clothes to Goodwill because it makes them feel better. And that's the whole point. It does make them feel better. That's the way we're wired. That's, that's not uh, something that's bad. That's actually a great thing. You know, if there's any hope for humanity, it's because it makes us feel better to cooperate and to help each other. But, uh, you know, that example illustrates once again this very bizarre schizoid relationship we have to happiness. We all want it, and yet yeah. we're suspicious of it. Isn't that strange? It is strange, and uh, I understand that there are, um, there, there are influences that we all are exposed to every day that promote things like competition and dominance and power. People who excel at those things uh, have a big influence in our culture, and so I think they have an unbalanced or a, a overweighted uh, influence in our culture, and they have affected things like our educational system and our medical uh, system, you know, our, our sciences, our arts, and uh, and I think uh, deep down, uh, slightly deeper down on the surface maybe, uh, most of us realize that what really brings us joy and happiness is feeling like we're part of a harmonious community that we participate in and we contribute to and we get something out of. You know, and I guess the greatest take-home message from my experience of studying it is that uh, happiness leads to all kinds of other great things like health, safety, uh, compassion, you know, communities that function well, um, innovation, creativity. All of these are byproducts of happiness. And it's contagious. I mean, uh, happy people tend to make other people happy. Exactly. There's a big uh, article in the New York Times that referred to a few studies that had um, studied that specifically. And uh, from what I remember, the, what they discovered is that um, if you're happy, your friends are more likely to be happy. And their friends are more likely to be happy, even friends of theirs that you don't know because you're happy, because, of course, you're affecting the mutual friend in between. And even to the third degree, your friends' friends' friends are more likely to be happy if you're happy, even if you don't know them. Well, I just want to thank you for a very enjoyable conversation. Excellent, Robert. It was great. Thank you. Rocco Belich, talking about his latest documentary, Happy. And now, for the opposing view. Well, what the fellow said, 
in Italy for 30 years under the Borgias, they had warfare, terror, murder, and bloodshed, but they produced Michelangelo, Leonardo da Vinci, and the Renaissance. In Switzerland, they had brotherly love. They had 500 years of democracy and peace, and what did that produce? The cuckoo clock. So long, Holly. Orson Welles as Harry Lyme in The Third Man. And by the way, I hope we didn't leave the false impression that the biologist Thomas Huxley was a Harry Lyme-style social Darwinist. In fact, though a follower of Darwin and someone who believed that nature is a bloody battleground for survival, he also believed that human beings could and should rise above all that. In other words, he was in favor of cooperation, not competition. Rocco Belich's documentary Happy screens at the Santa Cruz Film Festival Friday, May 6th at 6.30 p.m., and Saturday, May 7th at 1.45 p.m. Both shows are at the Nickelodeon Theater in Santa Cruz. And for the full festival lineup, you can go to santacruzfilmfestival.org. That's santacruzfilmfestival.org. And this has been the 7th Avenue Project. You can find us on the web at 7thavenueproject.com. Happy, happy, joy, joy, happy, happy, joy, joy, happy, happy, joy, joy, happy, happy, joy, joy, happy, 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 happy,